Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey, everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your home. We interrupt this program for the Thunderbolts, Justice Like Lightning. I am so excited. I have been waiting to cover the Thunderbolts on this show forever. This is Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And this is Tori. You can find me on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at SM Tori. That's Tori with an I. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. Hey, everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter at Dazzle. AOA that's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse and I hope you survive this experience unlike Luke Cage's faith in Hawkeye to lead the team. That is the most apt death in this issue. (laughs) (laughs) I want to put everybody in a comic time machine for a moment. I want to go back to a period of time where there were only two Star Trek shows and they were on two different networks. I want to go back in time to when must-see TV actually was kind of seeable, right? I want to go back to when Helen Hunt was winning every award. We're going back to the mid-90s and we're taking a look at the fallout of Onslaught. Now, for those playing along at home who happen to have skipped some of the rougher parts of Marvel's continuity, the Onslaught Or, or, or the Tory in the room. Or the Tory in the room. Hey, I was just trying to go easy on you. <laughs> so, because, I mean, you know everything on Billy Club, so I just, I like keeping the, the look going for you, right? <laughs> so it was a period where due to the psychic energies of Xavier and Magneto fusing into one unstoppable plot contrivance, the entire Marvel Universe got kind of shattered, and several groups of characters were farmed out to secondary studios in an effort to both save money and create a new creative freedom within lines. We would see this again to greater success with the Marvel Knights imprint, which would ultimately lead to the great golden age of Daredevil we live in, and the editor-in-chief ascension of one Mr. Joey Q, who, Joe Quesada, if you ever hear me call you Joey Q like that it is meant with all the admiration for a guy who took a at times failing comic company and turned it into a multi-billion dollar empire it is meant like you are one of the spider characters yourself sir and in that time with so many Marvel heroes shunted off to their other own reality a team rose in the pages of Hulk who I've talked way too much on all of these podcasts about how I was literally kind of fooled by Citizen V and how I think Citizen V is like one of the greatest Zorn level betrayals of all time and Justice Like Lightning Thunderbolts number one was written by none other than Kurt Busick penciled by Mark Bagley with inks by Vince Russell and colors by Joe Rosas and the only reason I want and of course Comic Craft did some beautiful lettering and the only reason I want to bring up this earliest version of the Thunderbolts for one moment is because this is not that Thunderbolts and that's really important to this discussion. I want to open up before we go any further with how much experience if any at all do you guys have with the cultural understanding not necessarily of this first volume of Thunderbolts as this is the only one to run well into the hundreds and subsequent volumes have been significantly less successful but rather with the Thunderbolts possibly getting a film in the near future and
and the rise of the Thunderbolts through the Disney Plus programming, I would love to understand how you guys feel when you hear Thunderbolts, Justice Like Lightning, and I will always add the Justice Like Lightning. (laughs) I obviously was aware of Thunderbolts. I didn't really read much of it at the time. I was fascinated by the idea once I heard what it really was, but I still need to go back. I did buy the first Omnibus because I'm like, everybody says they love it. Like, Nico, you talk about it all the time, Steve. They are like gushing about it. So like, I'm like, I have to read Thunderbolts. I just haven't done it yet because I know it's so much to read. I'm aware of the characters. I do have love for Songbird and stuff I've seen her in. And I've allowed myself to move past the fact that she was the grappler who fought Dazzler in jail because I was just really hokey. Not that like I care that you fought Dazzler in jail or that you were in jail with Dazzler. (laughs) But like, it was just, it was like a really hokey appearance at the time. So I moved past the screaming Mimi of it all. Songbird is an amazing character in what I've read her in. I've read her in Brother and stuff like that. But I just, I never got into Thunderbolt proper. I think it was more a, like, Clint Barton's never been my least favorite superhero, but he's definitely never been my favorite superhero. And he was the, like, the name draw of that series. So it just, it wasn't something that got me in. I've read some of the other Thunderbolts, like Luke Cage 1, I read a few issues of that. And I love that you brought up that iteration because I didn't really have a smooth way of getting there otherwise. But that iteration is just around the same time that this super fucking incredible Power Man comes from. Uh, kind of the Shadowland era of Daredevil that Thunderbolts crossed over with that. So I love that reference. Yeah, that's a terrific team. Yeah, that was that was fun when I read of them. And like, and I didn't really care for them in The Devil's Reign. It was well written. Like, it was well written. It was well done. The team was pretty well chosen. I just have like mad hate for US Agent. So for me, I was aware of who the Thunderbolts were before this, but the team that I really got onto the Thunderbolts with is now one that I am bummed about everybody on the creative team. It was the Warren Ellis, Mike Diodato, who is not having a good week team that started with, I think it was 110. I loved that team of characters. That creative team is really, really killing me now. But at the time, I I thought that that was a really great onboarding point because you did have uh, over 100 issues of previous continuity to kind of understand what the Thunderbolts were about conceptually. And you got this new team that, for me, this era where Norman Osborn is trying to make moves is so good because he's just, to me, so much more sinister as a corporate head and as kind of a Lex Luthor type than when he falls back into goblin dude tropes. So this was a great team. You could always see that it was a house of cards and the power plays were always really interesting. And the way that this carried through into things like Dark Reign and Siege and all that, it really worked for me in kind of understanding what I believe to be the core tenets of a Thunderbolts book. And I really, you know, the thing I love about the Thunderbolts is I think there is a very clear thread from the first issue until this issue that we're talking about today that ties all of these teams together. So I also really actually ended up kind of enjoying the Devil's Reign Thunderbolts because I liked I liked the idea of the mayor who has outlawed super heroics having this team of supervillain superheroes that is only allowed because he's the mayor and he gets to basically decide what's allowed and the like how sinister that is in and of itself. I too really hate US Agent. What an awesome context for hating US Agent though. Oh, it's <laughs> so good. Those are really my two big ones are that Norman Osborn 
Osborne team and then the Fisk one. And I have a feeling that I am going to be especially into this team that we're talking about for as long as they get to play around in the sandbox. I learned about the Thunderbolts when Julia Leos Dreyfus showed up in the movies and Nico was like, Nico was like, oh, this is all about the Thunderbolts. And I was like, oh, cool and he was like they're bad guys and i was like okay i uh that's my only frame of reference could not tell you where they're how they started where they're from why the 90s is important glad we got some 90s lady to tell us about our team and uh i'm excited to see how this all works out but i don't know why we keep talking about a songbird okay so i got confused for a second i thought you were calling me the 90s lady because of my big (laughs) intro Uh, you you are kind of the 90s lady though I kind of am so here's what happened when the Avengers as well as a number of other heroes were transported to what's known as the Heroes Reborn verse which you know we all thought they were dead you know we in the MCU or the MU proper were like oh the heroes are all dead but they just think their lives kind of started anew with no memory of the past kind of like a reset point to make some titles easier to jump in on and in their stead rose this new team the Thunderbolts who were ready to fill in for the now missing Avengers. It would come out though that the Thunderbolts were not really Meteorite, Citizen V, Atlas, Techno, Mach 1, and Songbird, a number of amazing new heroes ready to save the day, but rather they were Moonstone, Baron Zemo, Goliath, The Fixer, The Beetle, and Screaming Mimi, a number of Marvel's biggest supervillains redressed under new aliases so that they could destroy the world from within, led by none other than Baron Zemo, who I love Citizen V, but, you know, Baron Zemo's kind of like a fucked up Nazi. So, you know, fuck him. The main tenant was that most of them, except for Zemo, actually did want to change. And Hawkeye would eventually lead them, and the book would undergo a lot of revisions and resets. But ultimately, it would become, as was mentioned, a version of the Dark Avengers, led by a very Tommy Lee Jones-looking Osborne. But the ultimate outcome of it was that the Thunderbolts brand went back to being the Thunderbolts, and the Dark Avengers kind of became a different thing. And over time, Marvel came to realize that a better move was to maybe try to strategically use this idea of the Thunderbolts for a number of more significant characters. The second volume of Thunderbolts, which would debut in March of 2012, which was initially written by Daniel Way, but Charles Sewell very quickly saw Elektra, Punisher, Deadpool, Agent Venom, and Red Hulk team up as the Thunderbolts. And it was not my favorite book to come out of Marvel now. Uh, it was kind of bad. Yeah, it was kind of bad, but no big deal. Wait, it had Electra in it and you didn't love it? Okay. It, it, yeah. It right? That has to tell you something. It had Electra <laughs> and Punisher fucking and I wasn't into it. Wow, oh, dear. okay. Oh, right? Dear. How, how, how hard do you have to miss that mark? If Electra or Punisher fucks, I buy. And here I am like, mm, don't read it. Mm. Thunderbolts Volume 3 hit in May of 2016, and once again, Jim Zub wrote it, but I need to point out that this is much closer to the original, but still missing some key characters. It featured Fixer, Mach X, Moonstone, Atlas, Winter Soldier, and Kobik. Once again, the creative team was Jim Zub, John Mallon, and Matt Yake with letters by VC's Joe Sabino, and this title was, again, sort of part of this era of Marvel that just can't seem to run a long book. It ran a grand total 
total of 12 issues. And yeah, that sounds just about right for a Marvel book these days. Yeah. Uh, that's like twice as long as a Marvel book these days. <laughs> <laughs> oh my that God. That is a really long run series. <laughs> yeah, considering how many books are tapping out at five. So, hmm. all right. Now, over the summer, there was an event this past year that uh, rocked me to my core. And it is like the only, I think it's the only event, and I've said this like a thousand times on air, but I think it's the only event where I've given every issue of the event ever in my life an A. I've like never loved an event so much as I love Devil's Reign. And I thought even the bad tie-ins were kind of attractive. So I'm very positive on this Devil's Reign Omega number one C story launching into the Thunderbolts. I think this is a great use of kind of building out of the fact that now we have Luke Cage, mayor of New York City. I am a big fan of that. And to start, this iteration of Thunderbolts, which the creative team is the incredible Jim Zub, Sean Isaki on pencils and inks, Hava Tartaglia on colors, and Joe Sabino on letters. Nice to see so many consistent names, as well as a number of the editors. Both Annalise Bisa and Tom Brevoort were both editors on at least the previous run, though Tom Brevoort has done more eras of the Thunderbolts, so it's a hand that knows how to shape his property. Very excited to see that level of consistency on the back end from Marvel. It gives me a strong indication that they believe in this project and this product. I want to start with the who's who of motherfuckers in this issue is awesome. Where Did anybody have any favorites going into it? Did anybody else lose their mind at Guts and Glory over and over again and then over again and then maybe a little bit more the next day? Anybody else have that experience? Or how did everybody feel about this team of Hawkeye, America, Power Man, Victor Alvarez, Persuasion, none other than Lil Baby Kilgrave, the original Purple Child, Guts and Glory, and okay, Photon or Pulsar or Captain Marvel, it does not matter. She is Spectrum. She is Monica Rambeau. I mean, I was the one that started sending you every single screenshot of Guts and Glory the day that they announced this book and started showing previews. So I think that speaks to my love at first sight that I have for this cyborg man. There's nobody on this team, with maybe the exception of America Chavez, who I have a ton of previous experience with, but I love this team. Like, I just conceptually, it wouldn't matter if they were the Thunderbolts or the New Avengers or the Heroes for Hire. I like the makeup of this team a lot. And and when the previews came out, that was the first thing I thought. And then when this issue comes out and you see that there's actually an in-universe thinking for why this team should be together, and that thinking in and of itself almost starts to be one of the more sinister parts of the book, that was the, just the synergy of all of that was really impressive to me. I also really like the idea that Luke Cage, a man of color, would put together a team that was primarily people of color. And in a way where some of these feel like he called in favors to friends and that just you know if mayor fisk is going to put together a team of people that are like him goddamn right luke cage is going to put together a team of people that are like him and i love that and to me again that's one of the through lines that makes it a thunderbolts book uh, I sent Nico a stream of questions this morning <laughs> being like, it's so, so do I have this correct? Like that these are all quote unquote good people because one <laughs> of them is very, seems to be very related to a bad person. And last I checked, Wyatt Russell only plays assholes. So like, what are we doing here? So, I mean, Hawkeye little... is bad at being a person. <laughs> That's it's true. It's true. Like I Hawkeye wanna... and Monica are the only ones who are like good people that I get, I guess. I don't know. 
I want to point out, yeah, Nathan, I think, can speak to the background on persuasion a little bit more. I will admit that purples, as a rule, are no good nudniks. But <laughs> Kara is kind of, you know, amazing. Nathan, I think you are a pretty big fan of persuasion and would be able to speak a little bit more about her. Kara first appeared in Alpha Flight. I think it was 41. Yes, it was Alpha Flight 41. So we are introduced to Kara Kilgrave. She is just finding out that she is a mutant and she's purple. She has no idea what's going on her mom tells her the the horrible story of her birth which obviously is very traumatic Kilgrave possessed his mother forced her to love him they had a baby together and then you know eventually she broke free but you know she ran away hoping that her daughter would never become a you know show the abilities but nope she she a mutant and has her father's abilities exactly she sort of anti-heroly like kind of goes around Canada trying to get people to do what they want Alpha Flight comes in she's got a huge crush on North Star. Like, she is oh. so in love with North Star. So, Whoops. she, you know, kind of possesses him. You know, she didn't know. Tough toodles, poodle. That's not going to go the way you want. <laughs> no, I know. She didn't know. You know, she mind controls him a little. He breaks free because water breaks him out of the spell. She's got all the hallmarks of the, her dad's powers. You know, like, people turn purple when she uses her powers. So, she was a trainee for Alpha Flight in their Beta Flight program which was just her mannequin who showed up last in Valkyrie, Jane Foster's Valkyrie. Um, and he was older and he inappropriately dated her. That's kind of creepy, but it was the late 80s, early 90s comic really didn't care about that stuff like they should have. Um, you know, and then after Alpha Flight disbanded, we didn't see her much. She showed up in uh, some of the Alpha Flight revivals. Last time we saw her in Alpha Flight series, she was more of a, actually almost a baddie and she robbed a bank and Heather Hudson left like stopped her but then Heather Hudson joined the team that she ended up on so yay I was definitely excited for her coming into it but obviously the main character who I've shouted into the cosmos is about loving is Monica Rambeau I love the way they brought her in too I love her foil against Luke Cage I love that they are that they didn't put her in a role where she just instantly wanted to jump back in and be a cop again because unfortunately she was a what was she a postcard agent I just want to take like two seconds and sing the praises of one Victor Alvarez. He is so fucking great. And, you know, we actually, this, I think the timing of this is unbelievably close to when the Fear Itself MC2 coverage drops that features him and X-23 and Aranya Spider-Girl and a powerless Amadeus Cho. Uh, so I think the timing on that's pretty cool. There might be actually two coverages of Victor Alvarez this week. Makes me really happy. Uh, the character has done some really cool trips around the Marvel Universe. He's appeared a little bit bit less than a hundred times you know he's a really dynamic character i love the yellow and black bodysuit he was great in the avengers academy period uh he did some time in the run that was avengers idea mechanics uh, one of the new avengers volumes he's just a really interesting character i like him a lot uh, but i do need to just one more time the boner machine that is guts and glory he is borderline pornographic like oh and i'm here for it uh please sell cheesecake cake of this man just whole <laughs> slices of cheesecake with him like sugar gloss uh, glossed onto the top i love this character this is i mean he's gay he's real gay and he's real gay he's real gay also and, like i mean one of those the, one of the panels i sent you is like the gayest thing like, i've ever seen in my like it has they have to know 
they have to know. They have to be doing this to us. So I just want to point out that there is a quote from Jim Zub that says he was intentionally designed to be a 90s throwback, at least on the surface, as a cyber soldier with a vast array of high-tech toys and a mysterious past. So I really love how much that harkens back to the origin of the book, that 90s period, because just to kind of, and Tori, I'm so sorry that unfortunately this reference won't hit you as hard, but that even kind of talks about how old it is. Guys, Thunderbolts is so old, it got a minus one issue. (laughs) That's ancient, okay? That is old guard shit. And, you know, just to see a character that was, you know, primarily used in the background, but came out of Shadowland, and, you know, this Guts and Glory character who's meant to be an homage to the 90s with a who's who of eras in between. You know, like you said, Nathan, while I know Jim Zub has worked a bit with the Alpha Flight characters elsewhere, Persuasion's best age was the 80s. So, and, you know, Monica has been treated like a third-class hero for far too long in the Marvel Universe. And, I don't know, this run, while not my jam as a Thunderbolt book, I just wish this was called, like, Lightning Avengers or Avengers NYC or, you know, Avengers Hell's Kitchen. I don't know what the fuck you need to call it, but... If I can counterpoint, though... Oh, counter me. Counter me hard. Do it. <laughs> I mean, I think... It's like I said, there's there's this through line. Like, the idea that this is coming off of Fisk's Thunderbolts and it's the mayor of New York's team. I feel like... And I don't think this is getting 36 issues. I don't think this is going to be 36 issues of the new Thunderbolts. I'll be shocked if we get 12. I think this is probably 5 or 6, where we establish that this is a great group of people working under Luke Cage and I suspect they will not remain the Thunderbolts for long because I do think the Thunderbolts always needs to return to that core concept but the idea that we're now flipping the idea of the Thunderbolts on its head you know the Thunderbolts is flipping the idea of a superhero team on its head and it has gone all the way up to Wilson Fisk's personal villain team pretending to be heroes now we're flipping that on its head and it's Mayor Cage's team of actual heroes who are going to do the cleanup work that Fisk said he was going to do but was basically lying and just trying to take care of himself and his people I think we're going to get a really good run of this for a limited time and then either the team will split up because everybody on it has so much potential to go the next step further I mean I think we've been waiting for it for Monica Rambeau for a while now she's very clearly got more coming same thing with America Chavez I feel like now's a really good time for Victor Alvarez especially if Luke Cage is doing other stuff so I think as a likely more limited series this is a really fun good place for all of these characters to be and for them to be the Thunderbolts for this moment it's really really hard to keep track of what's a mini anymore and what's not because they don't like they used to like I'm thinking back in the old days when they used to put like issue 105 on the front cover when it's a mini series but definitely they don't do that now anymore. it's always just a surprise yeah you're like surprise next issue is the last issue you're like what <laughs> The Real Friends were the unexpected finales they published along the way. <laughs> Spectrum is getting her own series as Photon again in a few months. Maybe she can be doing both. Wait, That'd be cool. no, stop it. I'm fine with multiple people having the same name, but I'm not fine with the same person having multiple names. This has got to stop. <laughs> I am just like, you know what? Fine, if we're going to change Monica's name, let's just go back to Captain Marvel. Let's just have a Captain marvel core of captain marvel yeah so like green lantern five but yeah I, i'm like why why Did the name change i'm like loving the idea of a solo book and it's supposed to be an ongoing so i'm like hell yeah but the name change again is like no one of the key things that stood out to me with this book beyond the unfucking believable art i just was so blown away with the art from page one it was in my mind very 
transcendent of digital quality. It looked like I was reading a beautiful paper book. And that really is something about the dexterity of line work and the line variance and line weight. Really, truly tremendous. I was taken by the art right away. But I have a weird, okay, um, Marvel has a Hawkeye problem. And that is Hawkeye, no matter where you put him, is never really as cool as everybody wants him to be. And it's a burden, you know? And the closest Hawkeye got to being cool, as Tori, you brought up with me earlier, was sort of the period of magical synergy between he was kind of cool in the MU and the MCU, right around the Matt Fraction, David Aja run, which is a beautiful run in the first place. Really spectacular. You know, I have an Annie Wu hanging in my office because uh, she did an incredible Kate Bishop for me. Love it so much. And the thing that stood out to me about this book was to make Hawkeye feel cool. I felt like I was reading a Bendis era book. Like down to, oh, instead of it's because Cage is the mayor of New York, it's just his Thunderbolts again. Like I did feel a little bit of a time shift with this in a way that maybe jarred me just a little bit. Now, I know that everybody's reading a various amount of Marvel, indie, and a select amount as well, which should play into the conversation because not everybody reads 30 books at a time. And I would love to get how it felt orienting to this new team without any expectations and kind of connecting to the narrative viewpoint of opening up on Hawkeye, one of the somehow least accessible Avengers. As much as I am very meh on Hawkeye, and like, like I should love him. Like he he wears purple all the time. Like he shoots bows and arrows, and he somehow got married to Bobby Morris. Like I, I don't know how she planned it, but like he, his personality is just always a blah. Like his anti mutant stance in Avengers throughout most of the eighties and nineties are kind of like and like drain on me as an X fan. Like I do love the throwback to him like being the one to be the point of view intro character for the issue because he was so prominent in the original Thunderbolts so I think it sort of was trying to make that connection to the original Thunderbolts whereas everybody although the one big response I've seen from this especially since the announcement was oh that seems like a cool team but it's not doesn't seem like it's the Thunder so I feel that was trying to fix that problem. Well, for me, Hawkeye was one of the only people that I recognized. So, of course, I was like, ah, yeah, this one. I know him. And then we got, as he was getting introduced to all of these people, I was getting introduced to all of them as well. And so I think that the for people who are just hopping on for whatever reason, if you were a big fan of The Devil's Reign and you were like, oh, this is going off of a direct moment within there. Let me check it out some more. I like Luke Cage. It's good to get that kind of feel and that kind of quick background but also for me I think it's a really great way to introduce that marketing concept that insidiousness that we were talking about before because to me very much so if the government is going to get involved in superheroes and particularly politicians are going to get involved in superheroes it's going to be all PR marketing focus groups like hitting them hitting all the different market shares like and demographics that they possibly can so like I really do think that that's an important part of it that we would only get through being like, oh, we know the idea of Hawkeye, but we don't, we might not really know all of these other people. And he goes, funny, you said something along the lines of like, they never seem to be able to make Hawkeye as cool or as big a draw as they want to. And it's this funny thing where Marvel is like, hey, let's put Hawkeye, this dirt bag in the book. And then they're like, why doesn't everybody like the dirt bag? 
(laughs) They never write him as a character that you really want to root for. And it always ends up, I think people try and walk the line of like, you know, we're all dirtbags in our own way. Like, of course he's relatable. We all do dumb stuff. But the problem is with Hawkeye, it never goes to a place where you're just like, oh no, I see how he's really a hero. The last time I really felt like a big heroic Hawkeye moment was when he flew into the engine of the Kree ship and disassembled. The last time I felt a really heroic Hawkeye moment, it was done by a Kate Bishop. Exactly. Precisely. You know, so it's funny because I also, I feel like Jeremy Renner so has the energy of that dirtbag and instead MCU Hawkeye is like actually an amazing dude and a family man. And I just so never buy that from Renner that there's just so much cognitive dissonance between MCU and 616 Hawkeye for me. Setting that aside, that was my one kind of point at which I was most wary was Hawkeye again. But I do feel like he's almost why this makes sense as a Thunderbolts book because he is, he still does appear to just kind of be a dirtbag and we're not really rooting for him so much as we're rooting for Luke and the success of the team that Luke puts together. I love the team that, the marketing and PR team that you put this all together. The fact that they kind of seem more like a Thunderbolts thing than a Luke Cage puts together a team of heroes thing. And those are the negotiations he's going to have to make as mayor. It can't all be just being a stalwart, upright guy. He's going to have to play politics. And that means sometimes doing the thing that looks good, even though it isn't good. And I feel like Hawkeye can really play into that in a way that like America Chavez is just too pure and too awesome to, you know, she'll be a part of the machine. But I think when she realizes how ugly it can get, she's not going to like it. Whereas Hawkeye, I feel like will always kind of be able to roll with those punches. I guess the one place that it lost me a little bit was his sort of intro to the team, him kind of trying to see him a little bit like he was above all that. And I just don't buy that for Hawkeye. I, I do love how he was originally like Luke Cage is like, I want you to lead with this team. And he's like, oh my God, the West Coast Avengers. I was like, ooh. And then I was like, oh. The East Coast Avengers now, bruhs. They're <laughs> doing it all with hot dogs and pretzels. <laughs> okay, I do love the well, long waited for payback for that fight that U.S. Agent and Hawkeye had in West Coast Avengers like way back in the 90s. Like that yes. was that was some amazing payoff of that fight. I also, I just, you know, John Walker has been getting exponentially more terrible since we saw him in Falcon and Winter Soldier, which is great. He is a love to hate kind of character, <laughs> but man, did it really come to a head in Devil's Reign X-Men when he's just randomly insanely racist to the mutants for like literally two word bubbles worth of panels, but that's all you need. I hated him at an entirely new level from then on. And so this was a great moment of payback on just like the buildup of hating this dude. Uh, agreed, agreed. I'm just like, yes. And you know, like it's the villains for Hire Many was so well crafted that I, I almost felt a little bit of sympathy for John Walker again, but yeah. just to like come back into the Thunderbolts, I was like, okay, cool. Like, yes, this is a this is the John Walker I can eat. I mean, that's I'm the so that's the great him. thing about him is like you always you see these moments where he thinks he's going to get on top again and you do feel sympathy because you always feel sympathy when somebody's like oh I'm gonna get it and then they don't but then once you take a step further back you're like oh I actually can hate this dude and don't ever want to see him get on top even though I relate to the struggle of hoping I myself one day get on top of whatever's going on in my life hate hate topping everybody just be like you're on the bottom yeah (laughs) the discussions we're having really have to do with a modern interpretation 
interpretation of heroics and a reevaluation of those in power and what puts them there. I think the idea that Luke Cage could be mayor, even though there were times that I felt like it maybe did kind of come out of maybe nowhere at times in Devil's Reign, like the miniseries that was supposed to help make it a thing got canceled. So we were missing some of the background on it. It was handled really beautifully, but I could have done for a little bit more establishing. And the original Thunderbolts were about like, he, 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 it's good to be bad. And... (laughs) These Thunderbolts are a little bit less snidely whiplash. And part of the reason I think that's important is because like politics has changed so tremendously. And when the Thunderbolts began, if somebody was like, yeah, not just defund, but decommission and disband the police, they would be stoned as a witch. (laughs) And now they would be stoned as a witch, but people would be like, they did have some good points, but stone them anyway. So I feel like because the political world has changed, the idea of a bunch of villains doing it for the glory on the camera that we keep coming back to over and over again really doesn't fit the vibe of the current Marvel geopolitical socio landscape. And for that reason, this redetermining of the value of power. You know, one of the reasons that I've always loved the idea of Thunderbolts Justice Like Lightning and why I'm so attached to that slogan and love it as part of their image. If I were doing a Thunderbolts podcast, it would probably be like, you know, and we hope you like lightning the experience or something because I think it's so part of who the Thunderbolts are, they come in with a loud boom and they are a crack of light and they're gone before you ever noticed they were there. They're this elite squad and we've established a same level of power, elite squad, and some of them have really horrible tempers. Hawkeye, Hawkeye, Hawkeye. Just want to make sure that everybody knows that I'm talking about America and Hawkeye. (sighs) Persuasion asked America on a date and she said no. Well, America's got a really complicated life right now, like so many Americas I know. Also, she appears to just be having some real power trouble that I kind of wondered how that factored into all this. Remind me how old America is again? A An appropriate age. 19. Yeah, a generous Ooh. 19. No, I I think... I think she could be a generous 21 at this point. Okay, okay. I, I'm i not going to fight you on that because I feel like it's that thing where people are like, how old is Scott Summers? And I'm like, as long yeah. as you give me an answer that's north of 35, but south of 48, I'm yes. going to say, okay. And if somebody says like, how old is Danny Moonstar? I really need an answer north of 25, but I really need an answer shy of 35. Something that Kevo and I were talking about a couple of days ago when so we were driving up to stay at tk's incredible inn and we had an amazing time and in the car we were talking about some work we're putting into our comic book kid riot and one of the things that we've always appreciated is not locking down exact ages because our main character riot in the earliest version of our drafts was like 44 and we were like geez we're making him old that's an old man And now, now we're looking at it and I'm like, I know so many woofy daddies on HGH looking fucking fly at 55 that I just don't know why Riot can't be 49. And like... (laughs) That's like, you know, that's the average age of all of the men in my adult videos. So I feel like that is really on brand (laughs) with the idea that, you know, it's kind of cool to have older heroes and younger heroes coexisting on the same team. I want that depth of experience of having Monica, who's been through everything. And I want the vigor and hopefulness of youth that comes with Victor Alvarez. And I want the two of them to learn from each other in ways that 
you can't learn if you become ageist and believe that teams need to either be the kids or the adults. And the idea that we can shed the ageist notions that a team makeup must be along grade level, for me, is one of the standout treasures of this book and something that really needs to be put up on a pedestal. I also kind of want to talk about the villains that they go up against in this one because it is a fascinating, especially for someone who's like, I know Electro as Jamie Foxx. What a team that just like randomly would come together for a, what, a heist? What are they doing? I mean, the problem is U.S. Agent just sucks so hard. He really, truly just sucks so hard. I did find myself, that was like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to more realistically apply a vague sense of letter grading to my comicking because when people listen, I want them to be able to walk away because we say a lot of stuff. And so I try to make sure I give comics a letter grade. I felt really confident giving this a B plus, like an 88 out of 100. Felt really good about that score. And I even put things I like at a B minus. So like, you know, I'm, I feel really positive on this book. The weakest link for me was the, unclarity of the nature of the previous Thunderbolts, this Thunderbolts, and the U.S. Agent Botman. I felt like there was a lot of you kind of had to do some homework to feel really fulfilled by some of the story experience in those locations that I really could have benefited from a, a sort of switch in gears. But I wonder if the point is that for new readers or people that aren't aware, the decision has been to kind of wipe the slate clean a little bit. I think that the possibility that we as a group hate John Walker more than they realized when Thunderbolts with John Walker started and so maybe we're not going to really be visiting any storylines about him being kind of a, a secret double agent good guy this was just you know they, they mentioned that this is the old Thunderbolts and it's just kind of rather than being something that can tie up previous continuity and maybe leave some other Thunderbolts threads for later this is just a sweeping of everything off the table and a fresh start and I definitely get how for previous readers and people with a lot of familiarity that that leaves something a bit unsatisfying but I wonder if on the whole it makes it more possible just to start anew with this team and build from here I definitely feel that that like if this is the old team it's either that they are going to be the villains that plague you the whole time or they have to be like shuffled off real fucking quick it seemed to me like they were just setting up to transition it and be like hey cool these old Thunderbolts existed here are the Thunderbolt. I was very intrigued by the idea of them just immediately going into destructo mode if they had been operating kind of under Fisk as opposed to just like the smart call which is disband and probably leave town for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, these are, these are some dummies. Oh, alright, 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 alright. We're aware that he was the spy. Are they aware that he's the spy? Like, how could yeah. they not have the idea that at least he's a good potential he could be the spy? These are the kinds of questions that I'm really glad we're asking because even in an issue that you're wholly positive on, you can still point out the sort of critical areas that could be strengthened a bit. And I also was kind of surprised there was no reference to Daredevil mm. at all. For a book that brought up Fisk a lot and the fall of Fisk, it feels like you would mention the follower <laughs> of Fisk. <laughs> It seems to me like they're trying to make this a book about how Fisk fell because of politics and that he's Ooh. bad politics. He's That's evil what I politics. I also feel like they really don't want any hint of Matt in Hell's Kitchen right now because they got to get him over to Fist Island. <laughs> to, to yeah, what? he's got to start. He's got to start having a big fight with the Punisher about who's got a bigger demon inside them. Oh, 
my fucking god, what is happening to Daredevil? <laughs> Wait, did you say Daredevil's on Fisting Island? What? Basically, yes, you're yeah. completely there. Yep, you just gotta loosen up. <laughs> Elbow grease time. I also am very interested in what's this creepy mirror dude? <laughs> yeah, okay. Evil mirror Hawkeye? What's up, buddy? That is a... Uh... It's Bob from uh, Twin It Peaks. is, it's Bob. How's Bobby? How's Bobby? So, you know, I had also forgotten that things were so bad between Bobby and Clint that Kate and America were on West Coast together, sort of the same way that Hawkeye and Wonder Man were on West Coast together. And the story opens with a Hawkeye and Wonder Man conversation. I mean, Hawkeye was also on that West Coast Avengers with Kate and America. (laughs) And America was on Ultimates with Monica. So that's why Kate's not here. She's in California having the time of her life. Kate had a recently really uneven miniseries that left me wanting at the end. But I'm hoping for more from her. Kate's just sort of a character that we've we've talked about it a bit on the show. There is an inherent sense of Kate is talked about more than she appears. So sometimes Kate's just nowhere to be found and everybody mentions her and it sucks. I feel like part of that is because she is so cool and she is the promise of a cool Hawkeye that's not a dirtbag mess. And people are scared to put her in too much and ruin the really good image that she has. Yeah, but she's a bit of a teenage dirtbag. Yeah. Yeah, uh, she wants to go see Iron Maiden with me. So I'm completely and thousand percent back to the 90s. I love it. Like, I got to know who Guts and Glory is. Like, this is going to be so cool. Like, hopefully it'll be a cool payoff. Like, like I know it's a, like to quote Taya, a quote unquote new character. But like, it's got to be like a throwback character that they're bringing back. Because, you know, like that the whole Thunderbolt thing, right? Like, come on, you can't like introduce a new character in Thunderbolts and not do that. Like, and like the, the powers and the weird 90 throwback like really reminds me of this very obscure alpha flight character even more obscure than persuasion called wire that like really has me thinking that guts and glory could be related to wire or wire you know like some reason even looks drawn canadian to me so okay i love drawn canadian that's my new favorite sentence (laughs) number two uh i've had a theory that maybe guts and glory is made up of it's gross but made up of parts retained from robots and cyborgs in the service of the United States paramilitary organizations and I wonder if he's got like a motherboard that's a little bit Deathlock and a little bit Vision and a little bit Tony Stark armor and a little bit a lot of people and that's why it doesn't always quite work and like it fails sometimes. My only other I love these better than my theory which is not even a theory it's just he feels oddly Liefeldian and so I'm looking around to that stuff to see you know I mean because like I see a bunch of like six-pack-esque looks to them. If he's a 90s throwback, that's kind of the area that I am generally, my mind gravitates towards when I look at him. But I like both of your ideas better. He feels very Kane-y to me. Yes, exactly. Yes, because I thought that these were all known quantities and that we were just hiding information from Hawkeye. (laughs) So I was just like, oh, is this like Cable's kid or something? That was what I, honestly, yes, that's what I thought too.
Hey everybody, Nico here again, and we hope you guys enjoyed that look at the Thunderbolts, as well as a little bit of the history that goes into this series. I have long been a fan of Thunderbolts, and it's been so exciting to see the title come back in such a new way. Now, we have a ton more exciting material coming your way. We're going to kick things off with a look at Defenders Beyond number two, before moving into Iron Fist, and we have a very short look at X-Force numbers 30 and 31. Unfortunately, something happened, some of the audio was lost, but so much of what we had was so good, there was no way I was going to lose that material. So, we we hope you guys enjoy everything that's coming your way the rest of this episode. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, you might even like what you see, and you can check the show out at xsforpodcast.com, as well as xsforpodcast on Twitter. You can find me at Twitter at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, as well as my work in the Young Men in Love anthology, as well as at KidRiotComics.com and more. We, we love dropping this show Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Mondays taking a look at Spider-Girl's complete history, with Wednesdays and Fridays looking at Marvel's most recent title. We hope you guys enjoyed these last segments, and until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoa gateways open, and we'll see ya. Hello everybody, and welcome back to another exciting segment of X's for Podcast. Today we're here talking about Defenders Beyond number two. I'm Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. I'm Kyle, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And this is Juancho, you can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakoa. And that makes me Dame Red Thread, aka Raven. <laughs> and that makes me Nathan. You can find me at Twitter at DesireeOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. And I say that all the time. I hope you survive this experience, unlike my hope that any other Phoenix host can be as good of a Phoenix host as Ty. Right. Oh my god! Very exciting stuff. She looks so good. I cannot wait for the next issue already, but we are here to talk about Defenders Beyond number two, titled... Yesod, the second cosmos. Our storytellers for this comic are Al Ewing and Javier Rodriguez. On letters, we have BC's Joe Caramagna, Bill Moss ed is the assistant editor, and Michelle Marchese is the editor. So tell me, what did y'all think about this one? I don't know why I love these books so damn much, but I do. It was so unexpected, and it made me so excited to see the next issue. Yes. I am in awe of Al Ewing's dedication to continue the basically the same story that he started with Marvel and just to keep expanding on it and expanding on it in a way that is it's amazing like it's so well thought out like if, if anybody could be like a spiritual successor to like Morrison or Hickman even like I, I think Ewing is already up there in that sort of masterclass comics crap I can't believe I'm rooting for a Phoenix host that is in Jean Grey for the first time <laughs> <laughs> yeah it turns out we weren't actually all mad that the Phoenix was being used by non-mutants it was just that they weren't good enough. Aw, <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Echo. <laughs> I mean, okay, to be hey, fair, okay. I actually like Echo as the Phoenix. I, and weirdly enough, I was thinking about Wolverine as an Avenger. <laughs> okay. Oh, <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So we're here. We're here to talk about the second issue of Defenders. It seems like we're all on the same page, which is that these pages are awesome. As, as Nathan was saying, this is as epic. It's as big. It's as like world shaking and phenomenally written and phenomenally drawn and phenomenally colored as you know Secret Wars 2015, often considered to be Marvel's greatest crossover event. And yet, it's just happening in these like B comics. I hate to even call them B comics because they're my favorite comics coming out. But like you know, it's in Defenders, which is like the b team to the avengers it's in ultimates which 
which was, you know, going on in the background of a lot of other stuff that was happening at all new, all different Marvel. And it's this long, epic story that has been continuous throughout all, or at least most, of Al Ewing's work at Marvel. And it is just so phenomenal to see it constantly reach new heights and new realms of possibility and new places to explore that are all places that we've all wanted to see more of from other creators in the past. And it's there's certainly weight to the idea that this is a hypersigil forming right before our very eyes in these comics. So uh, before we start off, I just want to give a little note. I am, again, as I've said in the past, not any kind of expert on the Kabbalah, but this issue is titled Yesod, which is the Sephira directly above Malkut, which we talked about last time. It is representative of the second cosmos in that, as I understand it, and I have only a very basic understanding, it is the Sephira of communication, of connection, the power of connection, and of transmission and moving between states of things or conditions of things. So we started out in the actual material reality of eternity, and we are now channeling. We're in the in-between space. We're moving and we're connecting not only narratively between each successive iteration of the cosmos, but also in our moving through the remains of the second cosmos from the material reality of eternity to what lies beyond. I found that Yasad is apparently sometimes called the engine room of creation, which we see in this issue as the Beyonder's home. So I think Al Ewing is doing a lot of great research and I would love to know more. <laughs> so I read Ultimates and Ultimates 2 when they were coming out way back when. But I decided to reread them this week just like to prepare. And it's so great seeing all the uh, references to it. Like the first panel, which looks to be like the first firmament showing up and the dark celestials and like all the battles when the first firmament killed everything with Logos, which was sort of missing here. But uh, yeah, it's great to see all the references to that and to other previous stories. And yeah, it's, you can you can see all the threads going through Ultimates 1 and Ultimates 2, going through Defenders and now to Defenders Beyond. And it's just this great cosmic work that I was doing and it's just fantastic. Yeah, and beyond being a cosmic story, it's also a deeply intimate and human story the entire time. Something that struck me a lot about Ultimates 2, which might be my favorite Marvel comic right now. Looking at the Ultimate Saga, like Ultimates 1 was a great book that got derailed by a horrible event. Al Ewing put a lot of seeds of Carol's behavior in that into, so that if you were reading the Ultimates, the Civil War 2 really like was made sense and it made sense with their character. I really have not had as much love for the character especially in her new I'm the ultimate cop phase which how do you do that from being a space pirate to go like oh I'm the ultimate cop but um like it, it's such a great read uh the portrayal of Galactus and the changes that he's gone through and how he's fighting so hard not to be forced to go back to the role that the universe wanted him to play it's, it's such a beautiful story it's hard to do a quick recap without just seeming really disjointed and instead it felt like a really good concise recap that made sense and got me at least enough information i'm like oh okay i got a good idea of how this how this whole thing is supposed to work you know on, on the broad strokes this is going to bring me into the story they're going to tell me more stuff they're going to refer back to other things and then oh my goodness the piece de resistance they put a read list at the back which gives me a way to go back and figure out which comics i actually need to read so that i can be up to date on everything and it's Awesome. This is a really concise recap. And on top of that, and I think most importantly, it's visually interesting. You know, it's bombastic. It's exciting. It's brilliantly colorful. There's a few different art styles on display here. And it's all told in such a way that you immediately get the point. The, the layouts are beautiful. The way that the caption boxes flow across the page has always been really impressive. But yeah, I mean, the singular vision of the second cosmos killing itself, choosing to die as a cosmos is colored in such a way that I like could not stop.
stop staring at it for a good 20 minutes. It's really gorgeous. And right after that, we get a nice quick, like 10 second summary of the Beyonders whole deal, the singular Beyonder from the original Secret Wars and Secret Wars 2. The Beyonder specifically say like, yeah, I could just be like that guy again, a little casual, a little colloquial, uh, cosmic naivete. But, you know, watch out for me because I'm still pretty wild and unstable. I, I love the reappearance of the disco jumpsuit. Yes. The engine room of creation is just like a beautiful room of tubes that is just like amazing to look at. It has that very 1960s, 1970s feel. The colors and just just the, the way that everything is built in that room, it just has that kind of very 70s feel to it. It's bringing the best parts of classic Doctor Strange stories in the art to this, and I'm, I'm down for that. I'm digging it. Yeah, since we're speaking of the art, I mean, every time we look at one of these, his comics i think it's so unfair one of the best artists in the world is also one of the best colorists like, yeah it's so right. unfair <laughs> <laughs> he also does his own inks god i think wow he only had somebody do his inks on one issue of the previous defenders comic as well which is just like a, truly astonishing the amount of work that goes in these comics list him as a co-equal storyteller with al ewing rather than writer and artist and i think that's really appropriate and i think i think more people should be talking about the work that javier rodriguez puts in to make these this defenders saga astonishing and unforgettable on the page and and i also got to give credit to the letterer in this issue because you are working with so many different styles that so many different characters that have iconic styles but like they nailed it every second especially when you got to the end with so good interpreting you know taya's bit into it and the effects in this issue are amazing and they're big and epic shout out to both uh joe carmania and javier rodriguez if rodriguez is the one who colors sound effects or the word bubbles as well because I just want to point out that when we get that incredible page at the end with Taya saying I am Phoenix and in the outfit loving this trans pride flag caption bubble something that lends itself that page missing something air quotes around the Phoenix that page is incredible like I want to print that as a poster oh my god yes well I should say the whole team does such an amazing job at it making art that keeps you slightly off balance because they keep changing perspective but in a good way so like at first you're looking at things as if you're on like equal footing and then you realize oh no they're they are tiny and these, these other guys are huge but even the the larger size perspective gets shifted and changed and i always feel slightly uneasy and off balance which i think is supposed to be translated to us because this is kind of the realm that they're in as well it's just they're going through concepts and and falling through realities and cosmos so of course they're not in even footing and i love it they're infinite beings you know and they can't be perceived by finite minds so their sizes are going to be uh, astonishing and transcendent as well and i honestly i think the art really gets that across not only with the perspective changes but also with how each panel as we go further is framed by the tubing of the engine room and you know like tigra will climb up on top of one while the beyonder is standing on a tube and pointing to another panel and talking about it or looking out through a panel at Blue Marble who's standing within another one uh, and it just gets more and more wonky and more and more confusing as to where
where they're walking. Are they walking on panel borders? Are they walking on pipes in comic? And the the shifting layout is just, it really adds to the psychedelia of the whole feel. I, I think one of my favorite sequences in this comic, and I'd love to hear about any art sequences or story sequences that you thought really stood out. But I think my favorite one is when Loki, the god of stories, and the <laughs> god of Earth, literally traps a beyonder within the narrative, like wraps the layout of the panels around him so that he's trapped and can't get out and constricted, constrained by the limits of narrative, which is something they're literally talking about on panel as it's happening. I am in love with that sequence. That was my favorite too. <laughs> I laughed so hard at that, especially with the nyuk nyuk. Like that is <laughs> that is so quintessentially like three stooges. You've got Tigra and like Taya just hiding behind the pipe is so well, so well drawn. It's so compelling. And like, you really get the depth that you don't always, the depths of perception that you don't always get in comic. I laughed a little like after, thankfully she survived being hit by the beam Taya, but like her, the like totally fried looking Taya is a little like cute <laughs> and comical. <laughs> She's so great. I just like, yeah, she just looks like incredibly battle damaged and like, I don't know, a character out of Berserk just lying there with blood streaming on her face and her black eyes swollen up but she's just like completely not even put out by it she's like we got to keep doing this also taya getting blasted like wolverine by a sentinel is yes. really much. Mm. It's exactly it's exactly that because it looked very much like it looks very much like you know blue marvel going towards uh the giant beyonder it looked like you know like Storm flying towards the sentinel and wolverine getting blasted i was like oh yes. my god a very <laughs> intelligent reference right above that is the yonder going to squash taya with his green hand i love how these panels are like there's one that's like all green, one that's all blue, one that's all red, but he goes to squash her and it looks just like a sentinel coming in through the roof of a house like they always do. I think this is my favorite Phoenix host outfit ever. Like Taya's look that she shows on the last page. I love like if like I'm just looking at it as a cool costume, but if you think about what it signifies, her in white is like insane. Taya is set, it looks like, as wearing the white version of the Phoenix outfit to be one of the higher Phoenix Force heels. Yeah. And I earlier I called this the trans pride colors and that's because they are but it, what it really is on the page is javier rodriguez again using the four key colors of comics you know the the black key the cyan the magenta and the yellow in this entire costume which is great a great callback to the previous defender series and a great uh expression of the narrative and creative potential of the white hot room which is you know what is fueling the engines of creation is the is the fuel source of everything of all that is a divine power i also wanted to praise the moments of america punching the beyonder into abstract art <laughs> and that smack is is unbelievable i love her with the eternity mask on it is so good and she holds her own like it's not a one-sided fight they really do just match the power levels with the eternity mask and america chavez and who she faced off against she's faced up against the beyonder so she is now on equal footing with the beyonder and they have her go toe-to-toe -to -toe and knock him through you know bits of reality and planes of existence like in this engine room and i'm like that is they did it so well this conceptual battles which are i i love them i've always loved them since i started reading comics and like you can see that it's america punching the beyonder thanks to the power of narrative that loki gave her plus the eternity mask right and that's 
really good. I, I don't know. It's it's great, and it harkens back to like when Galactus, the Lifebringer, was fighting Master Chaos, uh, Master Order, and Lord Chaos. Like these battles are playing out on such higher levels of the only way you can understand them is through fist fights. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. It's a it's a battle of ideas and abstractions, one devouring the other, or you know, knocking one another down the cosmic hierarchy. But it is shown to us through a fist fight through planes of glass, and I I love that. I love that that fits so well with the Beyonders' inability to express these things on a human level. I love this, but super violence is met with a violent response and the destruction of a flesh suit. I love the fact that Blue Marvel recognized that these a-holes had taken on a, a flesh form, a, a solid construction so that it wouldn't blow their minds. And he's like, oh, that's matter. And I am nothing but anti-matter. Let's do this noise. And he actually took one of them out. That was brilliant. Blue Marvel is so cool in this issue. Not only is that like actually a really shocking scene when he like breaks that Beyonder's face open but like he's really cool like when they're like it was a necessary experiment when we destroyed the seventh cosmos and he just points at him with a finger and is like that word necessary that worries me he's shaking his this Beyonder and being like hey you knock it off playing with reality and I don't like that we live there we've talked over at the Moon Knight show how much we love the like the onomatopoeic sounds but I mean on this topic they're just so fun here they're just like always so wild and joe carmania also did the letters on defenders and i just remember like he had somebody get like smacked and the sound effect was thumb like with a b at the end it was very playful and very old school and having a lot of fun with it not worrying too much about like not being goofy the dedication to having the characters have their own sort of like stances like you don't always see a lot of the artists put that amount of thought into it but taya is always in her grandiose gesturing mode Loki's always a little like mischievous looking. Tigra's like got her like sexy purr cat dance to convey their personality through how they dance. I love that Tigra always looks like the lost but competent sorority girl who's going to survive to the end of the horror movie. <laughs> Like, she's got to be the final girl in this. Come on. <laughs> I also love that Blue Marvel, he is like the quintessential put out older, like black dad kind of figure. He's like, oh, for fuck's sake. Hey, kids. Okay, we're doing this. Yeah, here's your mask. Go fight the Beyonder. I got to take care of some shit over here. Okay, I got to take care of this guy over here. Like, I I love him so freaking much. Like, uh, you, you could feel the exasperation and it's beautiful. Not only like does Blue Marvel stand out as like, like the scully of this in the first issue but he actually like i think there's a subtle moment in here where he grows to accept the demands of story and the rules of story as they go because there's a part where after you know loki traps them in the narrative traps beyonder but also them in the narrative of what they're in blue marvel responds to that by saying but also a potential new chapter loki and he points to the furnace at the heart of creation you know the entrance to the white hot room as we're as we're looking into the next issue and it's subtle but just the fact that he thinks about the thing in the terms of the story that they're stuck in and looks for a way out that would fit the bounds of narrative and i think it's brilliant i think it's very cool we're, we're, since we're in the remains of the second cosmos but we're not actually back in time and the beyonders are linear beings this seems to be happening contemporaneously but if you're jumping into the the white hot room directly it does feel like there's some archetypal level like what happened to cloud in the amazing defenders series before this in time in the white hot room is so so strange like i always imagine time in the white hot room to work so 
sort of like time in the celestial temple in star trek where like the white hot room is you know it's, it's non-linear like it, it exists like everything that happens exists already in there so like that's kind of how i see it but i would love to really get some real honest conceptualization of what goes on and what happens in the white hot and how time works if you go back to the page where they jump and you see like so many air quotes and like i just i mean this might sound random have you ever seen this movie uh oblivion there's this poem right the the character references that says something along these lines that to every man on earth death comes sooner or late and how can men die better than facing fe fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods or something along those lines it's it's sort of famous poem and that's ba basically what taya said right like maybe we can die but death has to follow us into this into this new adventure and the only way death can follow if if she's brave enough now that just i don't know man i love taya so much and i love how this really keeps up the theme that's been going on lately that you know the phoenix demands a sacrifice to be like if there's one good thing that came out of the into the phoenix was that like you know like to become the phoenix you you almost have to want to sacrifice yourself for others yeah and i mean I, that's what jean gray did the first time we saw her come in here and by that token i love seeing taya say jean gray's speech like straight up and i love seeing the phoenix force conceptualized not as either the one million bc avengers phoenix or jean gray so no no just random redhead and like i think we did actually see it when her cowl is blown off like she's got a front shock of magenta but like the rest of her hair seems to be brunette so no it's not just another redhead we have somebody who has got like multicolor hair she is a bi-colored goddess right who apparently bleeds in really weird colors well, yeah. Taya was the drawing of the reverse Ten of Cups, and when I was first reading through those tarot cards that they drew in the first issue, it felt a lot like this was stuff that was summarizing where they were at in their lives as of recently, you know? Stuff to give us a little context for the character and where they're at. And it was the sundering of relationships and external forces breaking down, you know, bonds of family and community. And I am starting to think, like, I'm wondering if any of that will have any relevance for what we see next with Taya in the White Hot Room. I think it's very interesting and i don't know if i'm just like fishing for it or reaching for it but i mean ty is now life in, re, uh, life incarnate which was basically what galactus was at the end of ultimates so and i wonder if that's like out pulling some sort of a this sort of bloodline thing again or maybe it's just out trying to bring back lightbringer galactus because to me that's the best status galactus ever had it's the most complex status and interesting status for him and it would be great to have phoenix taya talk to lifebringer galactus I would be so happy if she could meet her son as the happiest he ever was in his life past death of the universe. It would it would be so wonderful, and I, I really like that you're doing that. I don't I don't think you're reaching actually because we saw in the last Defenders series when they referenced Lifebringer One, the first hero who fought the anti all in the third cosmos. You know, when they fought Lifebringer One, it's a giant golden god just like Lifebringer Galactus was, and as Galactus had named his ship and Taya named her cycle. So I, I do think that like when we saw the anti all shattered at the end of that, and they said stuff. Of like when we fight the great darkness in our time when we push back against that you know we are fighting the anti-all anti as well and some of us become the life bringer you know galactus pushing back against his own dark self and against you know lord order and the other forces of the chaos was him pushing back the anti-all in a lot of ways obviously null factors into that and i do think taya could absolutely be an aspect of the life bringer in herself and i think that her somehow meeting galactus or meeting that iteration of galactus out there in the second cosmos would be just 
just amazingly heart melting. Lifebringer one is something that I was been carrying since Ultimates. Um, there's this page where they're fighting the first firmament, and to fight him, they bring the ultimate ultimates, which is essentially each iteration of the cosmos. And the third cosmos, it says that it's the third, the creator of Lifebringer one, the first hero, and it just ties everything into this nice little bow to Defender yeah. uh, five. Yeah, it's, it absolutely does. it's really good. And Mr. Ewing's uh, influences are really obvious, but also they're much deeper than just homage or parody or anything like that, or vague gesturing towards something. They're additive and they're transformative. I, I wonder if we'll see Cloud here. I wonder if this team will be able to re reunite, even though it was mostly just Taya. That would be fantastic on like so many levels if we got to see Cloud again and kind of like bring the two series together because it, it doesn't feel like anything actually truly dies it no. just gets destroyed and reformed yes yes matter is continually formed and reformed nothing ever dies everything lives it's <laughs> that is the nature of the eighth cosmos as far as we know and it's the nature of the entire line of the cosmos at least according to Al Ewing instead of making everything like a hard and fast rule this is much more like these are concepts these are the concepts as they first started these are the concepts as they developed these are the concepts where they live now but they're still in transition and i love that i'm continually amazed by this book like taya as the phoenix force is something i'm so excited for even though i know it'll only last most likely in the last few issues of this minis or even maybe even the next issue of the mini series i'm waiting to see what tigra's role is going to be because like right now she's very much acting as a very good um stand-in for the audience kind of where she's like oh wait what's going on here and like oh wait you're the bat beyond her and i just can't wait to see what happens and what amped up with her i'm really happy that we finally got explanations of all of the archetypes from the last defenders book oh that was awesome to see that page i can't wait for the next one i like for once that i'm i'm following a book that has more conceptual and high-minded type uh plot lines versus my usual which is just let's go with some straight violence and looking cool blowing up shit because that's what i need right now i'm like ooh, this is kind of i like it it's intellectual and, and it works for me on a very different level and and it, it's not competing with the other titles that I love for my attention in the same way, which I'm here for. Yeah, this is a very uh, stimulating book for the mind. I think every time I'm reading one of these books, I'm reading like researching past issues, researching concepts from from these books, which I think is it's very great. That it's a book that's it's not engaging just like while you're reading it, but beyond that. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcast. I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. I'm Tori, you can find me on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan, and on Instagram at smtori, that's Tori with an I. Hey everybody, it's Jonah, you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at peakjonah, that's P-E-A-K. And I'm Nico, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and we hope you guys survive this experience, like I barely did, because oh my god, it's like a blade in his hand, it's like another hot Wolverine guy, <laughs> and, and the big fire in the beginning, I just, I could not be gayer for this book, you guys. <laughs>
the story of the Brothers Lynn comes to its conclusion for now, but with many hanging threads that'll take us into Judgment Day. We are, of course, talking about the final issue of Iron Fist, written by Alyssa Wong, with art by Michael Eagle, colors by J. David Ramos, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham, with a cover by Laniel Francis Yu and Sonny Go. For you guys, does this work as a mini? Does this work in five issues, or are you regretting that this wasn't longer or maybe even indefinite, that this wasn't just an ongoing? I'm almost resentful that this cuts so like truncatedly short. One of the things that I know is Alyssa Wong is a very considered storyteller, and they really think out long-term narrative, and we see it through all of their work, and I'm tremendously excited about the potentiality of everything this sets up, but my frustration then becomes the nature of the container, and that we're immediately following this up with a what Kieran Gillen says is essential reading Judgment Day tie-in featuring these Iron Fistian characters, but is it really more about Shaolau? Is it really more about the Swordmaster? Like, I'm really frustrated because five issues doesn't seem a deep enough dive into the incredible value and worth of these, these reinvigorated characters. I was very invested in this being an ongoing, so <laughs> I will always ask for more. But I do think that this is a well-contained starter, like, restart. But now I'm gonna have to find out what's up with AXE, I guess. I don't know anything about it. I'm a little sad because I am a Loki stan, and I had a cover here that was like, Loki stands in their way. And then I'm like, Loki doesn't even share time with Lindley in this title. So what are we preparing for is my big question, and I hope that we get to find out. Danny Rand, as Iron Fist, has never been a character that really stuck out to me. When we got this new Iron Fist, when we had this character, Lindley, who became Iron Fist, who was Swordmaster before, that we kind of see go through this, this tragic moment over in, way back in Death of Doctor Strange, White Fox, where we see him and White Fox kind of conversing and talking about, you know, their childhood, and their different duties that they uphold and think about. And we see him kind of disappear, presumed to be dead, to later reveal to be the new Iron Fist. I thought that was such a great transition for the character, and it really made the character of Iron Fist, this mantle, feel more interesting to me. And I like Danny more as the uncle to Luke and Jessica's kid. Danny? As opposed to, who did I say? No, Danny. Luke that's and Jessica's kid, Danny. Oh, oh, Danny. Danny Cage. That's confusing. Yes, that's Danny, the joke. That's, yeah. Danny Rand Danny. Is, is uncle to Danny Cage. Okay, sure. I really like that it was brought here into this new character, and I was like, okay, I'm on board with this. I'm actually really interested to see where this goes, especially because he it isn't somebody who wasn't a superhero before. He was a superhero. He was Swordmaster. And now he's kind of both Swordmaster and Iron Fist, and I think that's kind of cool that he gets to have two titles, or two names and mantles. But I, you know, I am also in the boat of being saddened that this is where we're currently ending for right now. But I also understand, kind of have to think about a lot of different things that go into whether something gets to be an ongoing, whether it's going to be a limited series or a limited run. This has the potential to be an ongoing. I think it just needs a little bit of faith and backing from Marvel itself. I agree with everything everybody's saying, and it would really be my preference that this story get to go longer. I think Alyssa has proven that they can handle that sort of stuff in the pages of Dr. Aphra, which is a Star Wars universe thing, so we're not really going to get into that. But it's a long-running, well-loved series that they've written. They have been one of the writers that has really been put in the position of 
basically constantly doing, you know, uh, stories and anthology series like Voices, one-offs like things like Death of Doctor Strange, or limited runs of really not more than 10, 12 issues and then dropping down to like five and something like this or an Infinity comic. And they have done an incredible job of working with those limitations. And in the case of this particular character, running a long game through one-shots and a limited series in a way that I have some questions about who is getting the limited series versus who is allowed to do ongoings. That aside, the fact that the writing has really made this particular format work is incredibly impressive to me because I do get from a financial standpoint that this is just something the company feels these are going to work for us. For certain characters that are not going to be big names or will maybe take some times to work up to big names, we're doing this reset thing. You know, we're doing five issues, 10 issues, maybe a year if you're lucky, but we're going to do some restarts and hope to get more people on board when we do those. I get the financials of it. And, you know, life is adapt or die. Alyssa Wong really seems to be adapting in terms of doing this work for Marvel. The creative team is completely reuniting for the next story. Yeah. So it is Michael Yeag. And that moment, that page, which if you're reading on the Comixology Digital, it's location 15 of 25. That splash of of the Iron Sword Master, the the sword (laughs) fist. What do I even call him? He is so physically masterful. And I'll admit, there is something from the angling that is very phallic about the way he is protruding. When I look at the previous page and I see the incredible, much more classic Iron Fist posing stances that he goes through in that beautiful center panel to the left, it really creates a dynamic sense of who this character is visually. Something we talk a lot about on this show is the concerns of when not enough people are drawing a character that they become so like specifically monovoce that they they sort of lose natural identity. Rest in peace, Mayday. I actually don't want other people drawing this ironist. I don't because he is larval. You know, he is so barely formed as a character with an exclusive identity. Yes, he is the Iron Fist, but he's no Iron Fist you've ever seen before. No Iron Fist has ever had these glowing Wolverine claws. No Iron Fist has ever still been Swordmaster. <laughs> exactly. This emanation of Fire Raptor in the form of the Dragon of Shaolau. And, you know, I love that when it's time to mask back up, he can just pull his little eye mask down and put it over his face. And then I get to see his beautiful eyes, right? I'm just really excited about this character. And I don't feel like I get to be excited about characters this often. And that does mean that I just don't want anyone else to touch it yet. No one else come near this property right now. Like the idea of Iron Fist, this version of Iron Fist. Please leave it to Alyssa. They know what they're doing. Please leave it to Michael Yeag. He's killing it the art every single month. I'm really excited that it's almost like the Ralph Macchio, Frank Miller, no one uses Electra but me. I changed my mind in 93. We're still firmly ensconced in 89, motherfuckers. And that's what I'm looking for. I mean, I think given the length of time, you know, the number of issues, that's a perfectly reasonable thing. If we were two dozen plus issues down the line, you might say, "Eh, it's time for somebody else. But like, you're right. This is a, a larval moment. We get the amazing shot of Lee being the Iron Fist Swordmaster, but we also get Feng doing kind of a evil magical boy transformation from the vest and shirt into this incredible evil sorcerer supreme 
esque getup that he morphs into when he starts summoning demon energies. And it's just another thing that the style in this book is really on point and, yeah, is really just showing its development. So I would be very happy to see beyond Judgment Day this team continue to get to play around with the narrative and stylistic choices that have really come to fruition in these five shoes. I will admit there was a point when I saw Fang start to change that I was like, this is where we reveal that this has been Loki all along. (laughs) And I was like, oh. But like, I'm also very excited to continue to have this character possibly return and be of interest because I think that the Fang character is really interesting to me as someone who's like, ah, the old, I've deluded myself into believing I'm not doing terrible things. I'm only doing it for the future of, of something fantastic where we all get to skip merrily off into the meadow together. I'm I'm just fascinated. I find them I find them super hot. Like I'm ready, ready for this character to come back and you know, so I can pet their pretty hair and, and tell them tell them, yes, you can have that meadow all you want. Tori talking about this moment where I thought this would be Loki. It made me think of Legion of X, where it was like, Oh, we're finally getting the Loki reveal. This is Loki. He's got the green smoke and everything, and it turned out to actually not be Loki. And we're like, oh. But here we're like, wait, that's not Loki. And then Loki appears at the end, and we're all like, oh my god, it's Loki! He's here! If I remember correctly, when we interviewed Alyssa, they talked about something that they liked in their writing, which was, like, complex messy relationships between siblings. So I'm really excited to see them flex that storytelling here, and it's part of why I really wanted more, because I feel like we didn't get a chance to see a lot of the dynamic between the two brothers, and I really would have loved to have seen more of their dynamic and more time to have that developed before he shut off access to Kunlun. I know that's all oh, this is kind of like forte and what they really enjoy writing. I really liked essentially kind of the bait and switch. And I thought that was such a f- clever, fantastical way of showing that Lindley's brother really does mean business and isn't a foe that you can kind of just take down with sheer willpower and force where he's a lot more, he's a lot smarter and a lot more cunning than I think initially give credit for. At the end of the day, if Alyssa is allowed to continue this story and develop the relationship, Fang is going to end up being more of a character that is a baddie, not a bad guy. Like somebody that we sort of root for doing mischief, hence why Loki shows up. And that this is not really as villainous and evil when we take a broad step back as we might see it in this moment when we kind of need to have a hero-villain resolution to the story. Fang does play off as very femme. Knowing how subtle Alyssa can be, I don't believe that we are going to get the femme character who is evil and demonic and just wants to fuck shit up. And we do see some talk of like relatively reasonable motivations given all that this family has been through. And it might be that Leah is making the mistake in not trusting his brother wanting to just resolve this demon she used situation. So I think the interplay here is very interesting. And I love that we get this character that does present a little more feminine and that is playing a certain role but I in this writer's hands I trust that there's so much more going on here because I think the promise of having an iron fist we can root for because there's no baggage right and like that's something that we just don't really talk about enough and I'm not trying to shortchange any creative any any money but characters aren't real human beings and I am much more concerned with the feelings of a real human being than I am with the commodification of a fictional identity and if a character has become problematic such that they are a negative mark on a culture
culture's ability to interact with and enjoy something, fuck them off. And there's really nothing wrong with baggage. Baggage is something that accrues over time. With real human beings, you find a way to help them move that baggage or carry it or figure out what parts they can leave behind. Hey, goodwill shops, you know what I mean? So you can pawn your baggage off on other people. And I'm really excited that I'm given a chance to really like the idea of Iron Fist because I think the more I think about it, the more what I've always really liked about Iron Fist is it's a guy who no matter how much money he had he believed in his chi and no matter what he was doing at his heart he believed in being centered and understanding himself and that's what I cared about from Iron Fist so I don't not care about Danny Rand but I've kind of never wavered on that he's not even my favorite Iron Fist that existed before this show did I've always cared more for Orson Randall so it's like this is because Orson Randall is like definitively problematic but he's intentionally a problematic relic of a bygone era from his inception you know so I'm hunkered down I mean and please Alyssa I know you are like the in-demandist but please don't lose this character because I really want to see where this could go there's okay so something everybody forgets is Seinfeld was not a hit its first season because Doogie Howser was crushing it to pieces right people forget that The Office the first two years was not a big hit it was one of the least watched shows Buffy its first season by ratings ranked 102 out of 107 shows on the air. Sometimes things that come to mean the most to people, perhaps a low-selling comic book series that was recently put on hiatus and they decide to reboot it, uh, a new slightly more culturally sensitive understanding with a new writer and uh, an artist that can really bring the the characters to light. And of course, I'm talking about Uncanny X-Men with Uncanny X-Men 94 with Chris Claremont. So what I'm saying is when Uncanny X-Men started it wasn't a hit either. I don't think this hasn't been a hit, but I really think this has the hallmarks of a book that could definitively reinvigorate a brand for a generation. I don't know that this is Miles, and I don't know that it's Kamala, but Amadeus Cho has gotten some phenomenal mileage, and I could see this having the legs of an Amadeus Cho. I could see this having the legs of an Oranya, who has made a killing since 2004 through her work in Amazing Fantasy, her own titles, and Spider-Verse, but this team needs to to stay together to ensure that sort of gestational period doesn't become over-influenced in a way that might bedraggle the story. Just bedraggle. And I mean, I guess we're just kind of to that end where we really are at this point just a little bit left wondering, which is the tough part about this mini thing, is we just have no idea if we're getting another one, who the creative team will be. We saw um, Shang-Chi retain a writer and the artist that was working on it at the end but it was a different artist than started at the beginning and that actually ran longer we have no idea how these things are going to play out book to book character to character and I do think that is the one tough thing about you know as great as I think Alyssa is at this particular kind of story if we don't know what's coming next it does sort of put you on edge whenever a mini concludes yeah I could definitely see how this is the beginning of like me constantly worrying that anything I get into is going to be taken away from me really quickly because I have enjoyed reading this miniseries. So I have you're a enjoyed. Comics fan now. So yeah, like I guess I'm Welcome. part of this little team of of people constantly getting their hearts broken because I would love for them for Marvel to have basically said like yes, this is the new Iron Fist and Danny will still be around and I'm sure there's going to be some power up for Danny Rand at some point. I'm just really interested in Lin Lei and, and 
and and Mei Min and all of these wonderful, interesting characters that I'm just like, where when are we when are we coming back? And why is it a number six? Why are we going back to a number one? Why can't I just have all the nice things for six hundred issues? Like why why? Why? I mean it really is because of perception of value in number. There is a belief perception that number one will always have more value. For that reason, a number one will always sell better. That means that when you pay somebody to write number one, you're gonna make a lot more money than when you pay the exact same amount of money to write a number six. And it really affects my ability to interact with some of these books. It's the reason I'm so praising of Marvel's decision to incorporate legacy numbering into the Jane Foster series, even though it's at like 22. Not because I'm like, oh yeah, rack up that number, but because it gives people an understanding. Oh, this says it's Jane Foster legacy number nine. This says it's Jane Foster legacy 14. They're both number ones. Now I know which order to read the series. I'm so amped for more Alyssa Wong and I don't... I'm I'm I want to follow them into anywhere they go, but I don't think I'm ready yet to try to tackle an entire Star Wars universe. Well, the good news them. is there is a Deadpool series that looks like it's going to be a mini that I guarantee you will be accessible. Which you know, again, talking about financial decisions, popular character makes money, got to appeal to a broad swath of people. Setting that aside, giving somebody like Alyssa Wong a chance to do a story about Deadpool is only going to add to the interest and accessibility. And Deadpool is that kind of character that you can afford to be like, he is the same person under five different people's pens who write him completely differently because it sort of doesn't matter. And because as long as you really get the right people, there are some core elements that remain that can carry over story to story. You know, his fascination with the mutants while never being one of them, everybody seems to pretty much nail that regardless of how they do it. And I just, somebody who writes goofy, scary body horror getting some time on Deadpool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and because this was a relatively straightforward conclusion, we kind of knew where it was going and we knew that this was going to be the final issue, but not the final, uh, you know, piece being said on the story that's coming in Acts. So I really just kind of wanted to talk more about this mini thing and the fact that we really are looking at the new Iron Fist, who is the now Iron Fist Swordmaster. I really love that when he recognizes Danny, he calls him that guy from the subway. We really are moving on from the fact that Danny is the Iron Fist in a way that, you know, I. I feel like is is okay is perfectly fine he's still in the mix he's gonna be there to help he's very supportive this is what all allies should be doing giving up the things that are not theirs to have taken in the first place doing so happily and being okay with just being that guy from the subway so to that end I would love to know you know what do you guys think about how this concluded Loki showing up at the end and just final thoughts on this story as we move into Iron Fist Judgment Day I thought this opening was probably one of my favorite openings ever literally getting slapped by a spiritual dragon it just was very reminiscent to me of like dragon ball z and that's mostly just because it's just a giant dragon that grants power and stuff like that but i was like this is cool it was very funny i thought it was drawn very cute in a way that like made me laugh and really enjoyable and then it ended in a way that made me really excited for this unlikely not i wouldn't say i shouldn't say unlikely but this duo of loki and feng that i was like yeah no i i see this they're they're two peas in a pod that makes sense this is almost a loki and thor story if you 
really kind of think about it in this particular way. I really enjoyed, honestly, this issue, I think, uh, while unfortunate this was the last issue, I do think it's a great issue to at least end out on, because I think it's just kind of great all, all the way through. I thought the acting was interesting. I thought, uh, you know, the fight sequences were cool. I loved everybody coming back together. I loved, like, the little bits of co- comedic dialogue, like, that you were talking about, TK, with the, you're the guy from the subway. All, all these different things that I really think culminated to a great issue. Just a bummer that it's the last one. This miniseries really, really pushed, pushed, pushed to get as much of the of the arc in as possible. I constantly felt like every time we saw Danny Rand and Luke Cage and everyone that they, we were pushing towards the moment when they would show up for the final battle. I felt that we shoved so much into five issues that that's part of the reason why I want more, part of the reason why I wish that it was longer because I know that if given uh, eight issues for the mini, this would have had even more inside of it, more more stuff for me to sink my teeth into and love. And so I loved everything. I think that when a dragon tells you that you're a mess, you got like, there's there's nowhere to go but up from there. Like I, I'm so amped for where this character is going, where this team up is going, where, where we're going to go into the next thing. And I can only hope, 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 hope that this team gets to continue to like jam pack all of the pages with with so much action beautiful art amazing storytelling like careful character interactions relationships shifting of loyalties and and maneuvers and all of these things i just i really loved so much about this and i think that's where so much of my of my sadness is coming from is that i'm i'm just hoping that the powers that be aren't just going to be like okay that was great thank you so much moving on i think my biggest thing is that i'm so impressed with how newly familiar it is mm-hmm. we have this identity iron fit we all know everything about it that we want to know you either investigate it or you don't we live in the wikipedia age it's much rarer to find someone that's like i want to get interested in that character but i have no idea about them and i have no way of looking them up nor do i know how i have never heard of wikipedia and my cell phone is a, a stone tap like i don't know you know anybody who's ever too hard pressed to find out something about a character they want to know more about but the design while familiar is still unique and now the power signature which appears on the covers so that's something i really appreciate the axe covers have a really great variant that has the new shard blade coming out of his hand with loki reflected in the shard light Mm -hmm. so we do have and i posted that on twitter for anybody who wants to check it out right and we do have this sort of iconographic image it actually looks like the famous wolverine number one cover that looks like the frank sinatra album cover right so I'm so impressed because you look at him and you're like, oh yeah, that's the Iron Fist. You know what you're looking at as soon as you look at him. But the more you come to look at him, the more he's new. But he feels right. And it feels familiar. It doesn't feel done. It feels like something that you should have already known. And that's something I find very impressive. Super impressed that Alyssa so clearly put on page, I've got the Dragon of Shaolo and the sword. And I'm going to figure out how to make these two work. I am both of these things. It was always a weird thing that bothered me about Colossus having the having Sidorak, having the Gem of Sidorak and being Juggernaut and having a piece of the Phoenix Force that it never really was like, what the fuck? How am I going to make these two things work? It was just kind of craziness. Anyway, point being there's so many forces in the Marvel Universe and whenever you have two of them, to me it's really important to acknowledge like these things absolutely should not go together and it's either we're getting rid of one of them really quickly or I'm going to make both of these things work and I'm going to teach you something new about Marvel Mythos by 
combining two random things and showing you how they can work together and change a story. Loki and Feng, super gay together. That's my head canon. They dated. That's, is this a social call? Are you here for a date? That's what happened. I will not be taking any arts. Welcome back to Access for Podcast. I am Stephen. You could find me on Twitter at Stephen of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. Hi, guys. I'm Broadway. You can find me on Twitter defending refugees, as you all should be, at BWAY3RD. That's B-W-A-Y-3-R-D. And I'm Arturo Iyatusabe. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike Warren Worthington III's right wing actually his physical right wing not the right wing politically speaking i didn't work that out out loud until we started until this very moment so i wasn't being punny for once in my life okay that's fine and that must mean we are talking about x-force issues 30 and 31 all right what did you guys think about these issues daddy craven daddy Daddy he's such indeed. a daddy. Spoiler alert, he's a clone. I didn't know. I mean, honestly, Ben Percy, if you're listening, or you hope you are, lead with that because you had me a clone, baby. No, honestly, and the mustache, really. I, I'm just it's a sucker so for Craven. I'm such a slut for Craven. Like seeing him in the frozen tundra, like I would take him, you know, a bit more shirtless, a bit more tropical if I were to have my druthers. But yeah, Craven's all up in this bitch. I have a a lot of opinions on Craven in this. I actually was very shocked to find out that he was a clone as well. I didn't expect that because he looks exactly like the other Craven. He is a clone son, I believe, kind of similar to Laura raised by Wolverine. Oh, okay. Right? Something like that? Yes. He's so I did my Wikipedia ing, but this Craven is the clone, one of the 87 made by the uh, the High Evolutionary, and he killed all the other ones. So he's officially known as the last son of Raven and has been given the title of Raven the Hunter by his father. And apparently a lot of the same internal monologue because (laughs) we get a whole lot of that. So much so that when I was reading issue 31, I have to confess, I almost had a moment of like, did I already buy and read this? (laughs) And like rereading it, you know, for today's recording, it's like, oh no, yes, this was the setup. And then, you know, here we're proceeding. And I guess some of that has to do with like time dilution of it all like it starts off with him and you know Deadpool's head and then you kind of rewind to you know an undisclosed uh, time frame prior to and and work our way towards that like how Deadpool's head ended up inside this bear's body but some of the monologue was kind of I don't know. I don't want to say stiff. A lot of it kind of felt like out of context. I might have thought it was Wolverine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It it kind of has like that same kind of tone. Like, and it, a part of me kind of feels like so much of this is just like Ben Percy on paper. You know, like what if Ben Percy were our character in the six one six in different <laughs> well, forms? And you know, your mileage may vary. Absolutely, I think that does uh, speak to Percy's hand when it comes to characters that are like 
like this, characters that, you know, fit this kind of niche, because in all reality, Craven can be very similar to Wolverine, you know? And he's been writing Wolverine for, oh dear lord, how many issues now? Not just in X-Force, but in the actual Wolverine solo title. It's bound to happen. I think we're at about 6,000 issues, give or take. (laughs) He's bound to be drawn to characters like Craven, like Wolverine. So it did make a lot of sense when I heard that he was uh, joining the book as an antagonist. He definitely is able to do that voice really well, but it's because he really likes the idea of using these characters as kind of mirrors for Wolverine, and he seems to like a certain kind of archetype to work with, and then kind of digging into what makes that person tick. What I appreciated about X-Force 31 was that then he contrasted that in a very funny way with Deadpool, right? Like, he keeps into, like, there are these moments where Deadpool's, like, lurking in the background and is being, inter- like, the monologues are being interrupted by Deadpool's hand body, and that, I think, was a good inversion of what we were given in X-Force 30 that might have seemed too familiar to okay, we get it, you love rooting character, but like, yeah, it was a good like subversion and inversion of that. I think that makes sense. I will admit, I did like the scene with Deadpool's body parts coming back to life to pull himself together and I guess kind of screw with Craven for exactly five seconds. But when it comes to regenerative healing factors, part of my issue is that I do think that Percy actually writes them a little too powerfully because he he kind of, even in the Wolverine solo title, he falls into that whole resurrection from a drop of blood kind of thing and that's a lot for me and that becomes a lot for me in this book too because now we have Wolverine and Deadpool back together again Deadpool who I have to admit I actually thought that between like this issue felt fine but the issue prior 30 he felt a little bit sillier and a little bit more annoying than he usually is pulling Omega Red's hair and everything hopping on his back it was just very strange to me in the middle of a mission like that I gotta say I absolutely enjoyed unironically without apology after Omega Red has ripped off both of Deadpool's arms and left him with his two katanas stabbed into his chest and the bear sidles up to Deadpool and he says as you can see I'm unarmed, I'm unarmed. <laughs> yes yeah, no that was like, great listen Absolutely. I'm at I'm at the point where like on the on the scale of like dad jokes like that that just I still laugh that was that was good yeah I liked Omega Red sort of giving Deadpool a bit of a reality check like to your point even like Deadpool was annoying in that issue and the beginning is everyone on Krakoa being categorically annoyed and even Domino is like yo shut up like dude you <laughs> like we have work to do you like actually have to take this job seriously and not just because it's like ooh missions like the intelligence service the national security apparatus so people will die if you fuck up and what happens Craven the hunter wears his like wears his body Moira style to go through the gates and it's like people will die and like Deadpool you have to like it's all fun and games until you botch the mission and like you know villages get burned as a result absolutely i completely agree with that the dialogue was actually on point in my personal opinion when it came to deadpool i think he does have a very good handle on that character with the exception of like maybe one or two instances that i can think of in the past and he's having fun with him too which is like it's a nice you know to your point about like it breaking up the monologuing and you know know, the silly banana to the straight man of you know him with wolf Green was fun a couple of issues back and I'm glad that he's using Deadpool there is a you know 
I, I think we're going very thin here on the team. Quentin gone. And, you know, I mean, I've been complaining since I don't know which crossover event. Like, give us a network of X-Force operatives. Give me, like, Tommy the Morlock in the field. Give me, you know, whatever. Bring back Neophyte from the Acolytes. Have him spying and shit. Like, there's so much you could be doing and building out. And it feels like that's just not what he's doing. And, like, you know, that's, that is what it is. It's fine, I guess. Yeah, but he at least has pulled Deadpool in, and he's doing something with Omega Red and possibly Omega Red and Sage. I'm kind of feeling really weird about that, but As maybe that dis- that discomfort is a good thing. I'm sure, like we all feel that way at some point. We're gonna have to talk about Sage's drinking problem, which yeah, I would like to actually touch upon that. Yeah, not my favorite thing, but it is something. It's you know, I, I appreciate that he's doing something, giving her some kind of story i just uh. i'm very stressed about the sage omega red situation i would love it if they just became just like good friends who like trust each other drinking buddies would be pretty pretty solid (laughs) yeah i get the feeling that sage is the only person that he really sees it for but i do think that because they're co-workers it would be dangerous for them to get involved and you add in the drinking you add in you know omega red so sociopathy i just think that that would be a really dangerous space to be in and i think as age is asserting herself more and challenging beast authority she needs to for lack of better word get her shit together a little bit i don't think yeah. you should be drunkenly following in love with your coworker when you're trying to take the boss job anyway i think that you were absolutely right i just uh skimmed back and omega red does not speak a single word to deadpool uh, he has one thing he says pretty much to the group itself after he literally throws deadpool wherever he throws him yeah no to be fair he does rip deadpool's arms off off panel so like that yeah he does that's one way to get your message across yeah he yeah. communicates he just doesn't talk to him right but that was such an interesting and amazing observation because you're right it really is only sage that he does seem to communicate with and i do believe that that's intentional yeah i think that i mean it's been clear that sage is the only one who looks out for him and is a attempting to mirror the mission of Krakoa. You know, she says, like, maybe it's time for X-Force to have a heart and Beast immediately like, no, but there is something about pushing whatever they're doing, this national security apparatus to not mimic the kind of destructive behaviors and pathologies of human nation, right? Like, there's something, like, you can defend Krakoa without turning into the exact thing that you've been persecuted by, right? Without genocide, you mean? (laughs) Yeah, and without being, like, like, I mean, we see this in 31, like, the skepticism of the refugees and whatnot, it reminded me so distinctly of when the war in Syria broke out and all the Syrian refugees and how everybody was like, ah, they're like ISIS and we have to be scared of them and we have to screen them and, and vet the refugees, which is what already happened. And so I think that Sage is attempting to, to deal with that question. Like, how do you protect the nation, but also not become twisted and overly cynical? Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And I, I think it really speaks to the heart of what this book is and what it represents because this is this is like their national security team right but this is a national security team of a nation filled with superpowered beings tons of them millions of them where are all the mutants that can handle the issues a lot more cleanly a lot more neatly this is a fantastical book and it just feels like it feels like the, the character choices for the book are meant to be as brutal as absolutely possible 
And I understand that, you know, you're never going to like the leader of a task force or of a division like this, but to make Beast so utterly deplorable is such a choice to me. I, at first, was very confused by the fact that this was a Judgment Day tie-in, because clearly it was in some way, but in more ways than not, it was, it's its own story. I was actually relieved that it is not actually fully about what's going on in Judgment Day. I actually like that because I do also get crossover fatigue, and I don't love when books that I'm enjoying have to come to, like, a full stop in the progression of the story. So here's the thing. Part of the reason I like X Wars is because like I did international studies, all of that in college, and like I've like, you know, worked in and around national security stuffs. And also as a history nerd, like the national security apparatuses and how they affect history and all of that are really fascinating to me. So traditionally, you know, the intel sector is specifically the intel sector. The army is a bit siloed, the military is a bit siloed, but then the intelligence sector is also very very much siloed. You know, I think part of it is like Beast being awful actually tracked. You know, like Donald Rumsfeld is not a good person. Dick Cheney is not a good person. I want to say George Herbert Walker Bush was also a CIA director. Not a good person. Vladimir Putin, former KGB guy, not a good person. So you see the way that like kind of the un, the the carte blanche that they get by being in the intelligence sector and doing whatever it, it takes for the nation, quote unquote, corrupts people. I always think of the George R. Martin quote where he talks about how people People say absolute power corrupts absolutely, but he says that absolute power reveals. It actually reveals your underlying tendencies. It reveals your narcissism. It reveals your corruption, etc. etc. So what we're seeing is that is Beast being revealed, right? Somebody who thinks of themselves a genius and is very smart and has been given this task by their, you know, mentor in a lot of ways, foster father Xavier. Like it, it clearly means a lot to him. Beast as the avatar for that, for the cynicism of national security, and then contrast that with Sage, who is the emotional pragmatist. It's clearly taking a toll on her with the drinking, but she also made the right, seemingly, investment in Omega Red. Beast tactic of, you know, turning Omega Red into an unwitting double agent, and then, you know, killing him, tampering with his body, all of those things that people warned were awful, made him turn on Krakoa, because he understood that in Beast's mind, he was not of Krakoa, and therefore had less right and was to be exploited and used as a tool, and so better to do it by choice with the Russian state than to let Beast manipulate him. Sage is trying something different, and Mike, the scary question that I hope that Ben Percy handles well is, will Sage's methodology work out? Will the flawed but more humane approach triumph over the flawed and inhumane cynicism that so often wins out? Um, And it's scary. I mean, I have to trust the writer a lot on that, because it is fiction, and we should be able to be, to get stories that end optimistically. But often it's much easier to say, well, Beast was right. One of those refugees was like a conspirator. And there goes the resurrection protocols. Beast was right all along. And I just hope that's not the case. We do get the little tie-in, very specifically from Craven's point of view, where he does face the Celestial. He he strips off all of his clothes for so some freaking reason. I 
can agree with that. But what I want to know from you guys is how the hell did you feel about that act in general? About him facing the Celestial and him saying that he wants him to judge him, fight him. You know, like, I am struggling with that one as well because it just felt very strange to me, even from Craven, who is a very brilliant strategist and, you know, fighter who, to face a literal god. I'm looking at the page, you know, with Nikki Craven, and I just want to point to the line, says, as a clone, someone who exists outside the natural order, I can see more clearly the absence of a loving creator. And so much of it is driven by kind of clone existential conflict and turmoil, where it's like, he's so driven. I mean, literally having killed the other clones in his, like, clone batch to prove that he was worthy of being truly Craven the Hunter and the greatest huntman, you know, ever. There is something that clearly drives him to prove the validity of his existence, and so facing this god seemed only natural. And then, you know, as a god would do, it looks at him and it's just like, okay, moving on. And he's like, okay, well, I have to, like, that, that, like, clearly bothers him. And so he's like, look, like, I'll take on these other people who consider themselves gods, who consider themselves playing god, and show them. And maybe then the celestial will acknowledge him, I think, is the undercurrent of that. Interesting. Which is crazy, for the record. That is crazy, but I'm also not a clone man. So, you know, like, his psyche I am is not different. a- You're not a clone man, B-Way? No, I'm the original- Get out of here! <laughs> I will say that when I first heard about Craven joining the book, I thought it would be an amazing, amazing fight between him and Beast. Because even though I think Beast is a lot stronger than people give him credit for in terms of battle prowess, I think that, and I, I just don't believe that Craven would ever actually beat him, I would love to see that fight nonetheless. To make Beast, like, prove himself, like, you need to, I think he understands that, you know, chief intelligence officer is his station, and, you know, field officer go to the meatheads or whatever but also if you're supposed to be you know the the shield that protects Krakoa then you need to like be that you need to like put yourself out there and be at you know the, with resurrection protocols aside you need to like be at risk of, of loss and failure and prove yourself to your team it reminds me of when they sent Sinister with the Hellions to Otherworld it's like if you want to talk cash shit if you want to like get all of the clout and authority you need to be out there even Sage has gone on a field mission like again I can't help but think of like a Dick Cheney where it's like okay but you created these things and now you want all of us to take collective responsibility for instability and, and violence that you have created and that we all now are under threat and it's like yeah but you don't have to do it's like Beast you actually just go away like if you Absolutely. wanted to like work with Dr. Reyes in the healing garden or you wanted to do something else you want to just hang out at the Green Lagoon you could do that right I still maintain that I think that Dark Beast is less dark than current Beast. Because I don't think that Dark Beast thinks of himself as a hero. That's I agree with that. Beast. Everybody yes. says like, oh, he's becoming Dark Beast, but Dark Beast is just leaning into a kind of dehumanized, fallen view of the world, whereas this one is taking that on for the sake of being the hero, right? Right, says, which like, is... I'll be the bastard that Krakoa needs because he thinks that is a heroic thing to do. Exactly. To me, that makes it so much more dangerous and terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>